Hello, and welcome to The Right Side of History, a show dedicated to exploring current events through a historical lens and busting left-wing myths about figures and events of America's past. My name is Jarrett Stepman, a contributor to The Daily Signal. And I'm Fred Lucas, a Daily Signal's White House correspondent. On today's show, we are joined by Kyle Salmon, who is a lawyer and writer from Pennsylvania and the co-host of the Conservative Minds podcast. And he also wrote, I would say, a fantastic article in The Federalist called New York's new law uh, is abortion's John C. Calhoun moment, which is really the the topic of our show today. Kyle, so thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me on. So, uh, Kyle, first of all, this is a, a fantastic article, and I definitely suggest to our listeners uh, to go back and read this because it, it's such a deep dive in history and philosophy and such a relation to today's politics. Of course, I, I think that's something that's quite notable and most Americans are paying attention to now is – uh, the, the issue of abortion is becoming a major national issue, especially because there are a lot of legislatures, New York now most famously, and now others like Virginia that are passing uh, or trying to pass abortion laws that actually allow abortions up into through the third trimester, uh, kind of an, seen as an extreme position by, by many. And you actually draw a connection to uh, John C. Calhoun and his positive good theory of slavery. Uh, first of all, can you can you tell us who, first of all, who John C. Calhoun is? I think a lot of people maybe don't know the name of this figure and what he stood for. Sure. Um, Calhoun was a politician from South Carolina. He's uh, probably most known for being a senator. He was also uh, vice president under two different presidents, which is, hasn't happened since. Um, so he, he started out in... I guess the era of good feelings after the Federalist Party had died off and there was really only one party around to the, the uh, Jeffersonian Republican Party, no relation to the current Republican Party. And uh, so he was on the side of the Jacksonians when that party split up and he was uh, Andrew Jackson's vice president and then slowly uh, became Jackson's enemy for policy reasons and also for personal reasons and uh, probably too much to get into, but they... Uh, he ended up resigning as vice president in order to be elected to the Senate from South Carolina, and that's where he spent the rest of his life. Um, so Calhoun, um, I guess, was was part of that early anti-Jackson coalition, but later drifted away from some of them as he became more extreme in pursuit of the, the really the sectional interests of the South and of his state in particular, which there were a lot of those, including uh, – low tariffs and various things, but most of all, uh, the maintenance of the slavery system and the slavery economy was yeah. his, I guess we would say his primary goal. Yeah, I mean, that really seems to be the, the heart of uh, Calhoun's philosophy and, and really, I mean, I guess you could say defined a lot of Democrats, especially in the 1840s and 1850s, as the party became more the party of Calhoun more basically aligned with the interests of slavery. And I think what's really important, and you do a great job of this in your article, is explaining how Calhoun changed the debate about slavery. I mean, the founding era, we really had most Americans, I think across the political spectrum, thought that slavery was a generally an evil that needed to be gotten rid of. Now, they had different ideas about how fast or how that would actually happen, but I think most agreed that slavery was a bad thing for this country, that it was a bad thing for, for everybody, for the slaves, for the slave owners, that it was something that would hopefully at some point in some future would be abolished. Calhoun really tried to change that discussion. He really pivoted on this, I think, fundamental issue for the republic and actually created 
most famously in a, in a speech in, in, I believe, 1838, calling slavery a positive good. Can you kind of explain that transition? Sure. Now, I mean, by the time the Republic was founded, slavery was legal in just about every state. But in the North, it was kind of phasing out, just partly because of people growing conscious of the moral problems of it, but also partly because our economy here in the North, and I'm a Pennsylvanian myself, it just, um, the kind of crops we grew up here didn't really lend themselves to the slave economy the way they did in the South. We didn't have the big uh, cotton fields, tobacco fields, uh, some, but not that much. So as the North started to phase it out, even in the South, a lot of slaveholders you know, I mean, we had just come through a revolution all about liberty, individual rights. And, you know, they they saw the hypocrisy, most of them, in looking at their own black slaves and saying, well, we just fought a war for liberty, but, you know, what about these men? What about these women? So a lot of them felt that, but also uh, had a lot of money tied up in it. And sometimes, you know, people are willing to do something immoral to keep getting the money rolling in and to keep maintaining the style of life they had. But most of them, like... Uh, like Washington, uh, who, you know, didn't free his slaves until after he died, but he did at least have that sort of moral ambiguity about the thing and say, you know, we needed to move on from this institution. And Jefferson uh, famously called slavery uh, having a wolf by the ears. He said, we don't like it, but we don't dare let it go. That's, I mean, that's a, a, a classical analogy from a Suatinus, I think. Um, but he, the idea was, Sure, we all want to get rid of this, but what happens next? And they didn't have the answer for that. But at least we could say that everybody in America, for the most part, was saying, this institution, it's really not what we should be in the future. You know, even people who own slaves were sort of thinking, well, I'm not going to do anything about it right now, but I kind of hope my grandchildren aren't still subsisting in this economy. Right. So the big change came, I guess, part of it was slavery became more profitable through expansion to the West and to new, you know, fertile regions. Also through um, just, you know, technological innovation like the cotton gin. But then also you got states like South Carolina, where Calhoun's from, where there's actually a black majority in the state. So the white minority, the slaveholding minority especially, is starting to think, well, if we free these people, all of a sudden we're going to be the minority in terms of voters. And wait a minute, you know, how can that work for us? That's not really... You know, they didn't like the idea of that. So the the real people sort of started to harden their attitudes about slavery, saying, you know, maybe it's not that bad. Maybe this is the way it should be. And they start, you know, as we sometimes do, making making arguments to justify their own position. And and Calhoun sort of brought that to a, a head when he said that this was the only way that the two races could exist together was slavery, and that there was that it was a good thing for both sides. And it was better than, you know, the free labor economy of the North, and that it was uh, the system that should stay in place indefinitely. And that, and that, made, that marked a major shift in the debate in America over slavery. Yeah, uh, Kyle, um, one, one uh, question I had, uh, and something you made clear in this article, there was the, um, the uh, point where, you know, for so long they saw this as a, sort of a necessary evil is how they defined it. Um, and um, But sometimes they would, it would be rationalized. They would try to rationalize by denying mm-hmm. the humanity of slaves um, and drawing maybe the parallel to abortion 
for a long time that they denied the uh, humanity of an unborn baby. Uh, Sciences like shown that's not the case. And in both cases, those became when that became harder to deny, uh, then 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 we moved to the positive good in the case of slavery and the shout out your abortion uh, today as a trying to no need to rationalize it. Let's celebrate. Right. Yeah. And it's it's a it's a problem, I think, because it it eliminates the possibility that there's ever going to be any consensus. So when 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 people on the left were saying abortion is a necessary evil, that oh it only happens in these sad situations where we really have no choice, and you know they wring their hands about it, and some of them probably legitimately thought that, others were maybe just saying what sounded good. Um, but I think there were there were some people who who thought, you know, who were willing to swallow their moral doubts about you know human life and whether. You know, an unborn baby is a human life, you know, deserving of dignity and rights. But they were willing to put that aside and say, well, it's only in these rare cases. It's only in these unfortunate situations. But now, as, as at least then, we were all kind of on the same side. And we could all say, well, you know, maybe someday we'll never have to have any of these. Hmm. Maybe someday there'll be no abortion because we'll have, you know, on the left, they'd say, well, you know, all babies could be taken care of and, you know, by the welfare state or adoption or whatever. And, you know, we could all say we're on the same side. We just disagree as to how to get there and when we're going to get there. The same way slaveholders like Jefferson could say they were on the same side as Northerners who favored abolition. They just wanted to get there slowly and probably not in his lifetime. The change to this, you know, shout your abortion movement, this this kind of celebration that we saw in New York after they passed their third trimester abortion law, it, it's now they... They're not even pretending they want to be safe, legal, and rare, like Hillary Clinton said 20 years ago. Now it's, this is a good thing. This is good for society. This is good for equality. This is good for women. And that, um, that's hard to compromise with that because we're not, we don't even want the same things. We want opposite things now. Yeah, I think you made a really good point of, you know, especially talking about the difference between, for instance, the United States and Europe. I mean, the United States really is a rights-based regime. You could say that's a, a very good thing. I mean, uh, we, our, our country's history really stems from, in part, the Declaration of Independence. You know, all men are created equal. They're endowed with certain unalienable rights, including life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Obviously, that was a major played a major role in, of course, the the war over this of over slavery and in, in the Civil War. Obviously, that was in many ways the central issue, and I think it really in many ways, is the central issue in this debate that Americans are having about abortion. We are very clear in the idea that all are endowed with certain individual rights. Now, of course, those who are kind of on the pro-abortion side would say that a woman's uh, economic rights are are violated in some way because, of course, if she has a child, it's it's a great burden on her life, and, you know, this is her choice. And on for many who are on the pro-life side, we have to say, well, I mean, this is a a human life. This is if if all really all are created equal with certain uh, inalienable rights. How can we deny the rights to those who are unborn or will be born and will be, uh, you know, fully formed human beings? Uh, and that seems to be, in many ways, it's driving us to, uh, in many ways, an uncompromising position on this issue. And certainly, I think we've seen this kind of drift on the left. And, and Fred actually wrote a, a good piece a few years ago on the, the transformation of the, the Democrat Party platform 
uh, even in just a few years and how it has slid from the kind of safe, legal, rare position of the 1990s and talking about the what you were just explaining and how that there was kind of this idea that, well, we haven't figured everything out, but, you know, here's a here's a position we can kind of all agree on to being out and proud about the fact that, you know, we have these abortions and they should be a good thing that's celebrated under all circumstances. I think that's what I think is it's shocking many Americans right now is that abortion now is being celebrated for late uh, late term abortions. I mean, something that uh, certainly when you talk about polls, a lot of Americans are, are horrified by. Um, so I, it definitely seems like there's been a drift. And even the last few years, uh, especially these these kind of deep blue states, you know, New York, California, where you've had this drift into even the messaging around this issue uh, has changed dramatically. Yeah, it's um, it's kind of it's kind of a surprise because, as you said, these things don't poll well. So I think maybe maybe the midterm success for the Democrats they they took the wrong lesson from it. You know, where maybe they should have said. A lot of people were voting for us because they don't like the president. Instead, they said it's because they they love our ultra-progressive platform, including abortion on demand for all nine months. And I don't think that's what most people were voting for, and I think it's going to come back to bite them. Yeah. Um, But it's – I mean, when you talk – you know, the the issue of rights-based versus sort of a a compromise culture in politics, and that – that has served us well for the most part, it, but it, it makes it it makes it hard before we get there. You know, just like sure. there were people who wanted compromise on the slavery issue, and there were compromises right up to the eve of war that were offered, and constitutional amendments that were proposed. And you can't really get there because you're every time you compromise, you can't compromise human rights, not under our system. Mm-hmm. And you know, to say that. We'll, we'll preserve slavery where it is, but not where it isn't. And it, it, you still get this contradiction. And that's why Lincoln said that he believed the government could not endure permanently half slave and half free. You right. know, the house can't be divided against itself. Right. And so ultimately, because our our country values liberty and values inalienable rights, and that's our rights are enshrined in law, sometimes when things like this have to come to a head and there's it's going to be you know, it is it, going to get uglier. Um, mm. I mean, in Europe, you have the compromise positions where, I mean, most of Europe first trimester abortions are freely available, but second and third trimesters aren't. And their 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 regimes over there are actually more conservative on abortion than America. Mm. Incredible. But I'm oh, sorry. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, uh, Fred. Actually, I think it is important to to draw some distinctions here. And if, if Fred, if you'd like to. Talk about some of the platforms, the Democrat Party platforms that we've had in recent years. I think it's very oh. illustrative of kind of where this is going yeah. on this issue. Fred, would you oh, yeah, yeah, like sure, to sure. step um, in? And- yeah, well, yeah, I mean, it was just something, uh, a piece I did uh, a while back for the Daily Signal um, that did look at the 92 platform of Bill Clinton explaining he was pro-choice, not pro-abortion. He called this a a difficult and painful decision as, as opposed to, um, uh, you know, and, and, and really from 92 through 2004, the Democratic platform language had some variation of uh, safe, legal, and rare. Uh, maybe not always those words, but usually some variation of that. Because in 2008, where they sort of dropped that, and 2016, um, I think was kind of the landmark 
shift in which they uh, almost a thumb in the eye to the rare people in which they said safe and legal abortion and leaving rare out completely. And uh, and also they called for uh, repealing the Hyde Amendment, which uh, there has been longstanding consensus for the most part about um you know, preventing public funding, even among a lot of pro-choice people. It is interesting. And and what you, you know, this goes along with, I mean, the fact that today there are almost no pro-life Democrats left in Congress, even just a few years ago, there were quite a few. Fairly recent, because in 2010, you had, I think, 40 some pro-life Democrats or, or at least moderate Democrats on the issue that were enough to force President Obama to sign an executive order before he had enough votes to uh, executive order enforcing the Hyde Amendment uh, before uh, he had enough Democratic votes to pass Obamacare. Uh, by 2016, the Democratic National Committee delegates wanted to get rid of the Hyde Amendment, which was part of that executive order. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I guess I think the last one in Congress is, I, I believe, Dan Lipinski from right. uh, Kyle's home state of Pennsylvania. Uh, which I, I I think that a really important thing here, and and I realize you know you look at history a lot, Kyle, and it's as somebody you know obviously Fred and I do as well. It's sometimes hard to kind of predict where things are going. I mean, you look at past, and sometimes things change. But we do appear to be at a point in this debate where there's a rapid. Uh, sorting. I mean, really, you have people that are collecting that, you know, on the pro-life side. Now you have people collecting on the, the ex- extreme ends of the pro-choice side. We really have two camps here in America that are, are at a point where there's an uncompromising position over over rights. Uh, where is this going to go in the future? I mean, what is next? I mean, if, if obviously a lot of this has been taken off the table by the Roe v. Wade decision in the 1970s, but it seems like there's a lot of room for debate here and a lot of ways that this can go in the future. Sure. Uh, it's and, and like you said, it's always hard to tell which patterns in history are going to repeat until they actually do repeat. So, I mean, but I think the slavery analogy is the most apt analogy we have. But it, and it, what I think is going to happen is part of what happened there, as people were forced to confront what slavery was. You know, and part of it was a publication of books like uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin, where people in the North who would previously been content to say, well, look, I don't like it, but it's not in my state. That's nothing to do with me, you know. Let people do what they want in their own areas. Then they, they read things like this, and they hear the tales from escaped slaves, hear speeches by men like Frederick Douglass, and they say, well, you know, this is this is really, even though it's not in my backyard, this is an evil that maybe has to be stopped. Huh. You know, maybe even... Huh. Moderates started to go that way, and then moderates in the South also started to say, "Well, look, our whole way of life's under attack here. Right. We've got to uh, we've got to defend this thing, even if you know it's not my favorite thing. But look, you know we we've got to pick a side. Yeah. So I, th- I think you're, I think you're going to see more of that. I think because there are there are tons of moderates on abortion. There are tons of people who you know say, "Well, maybe early, or maybe in these certain situations, but not just any time you want. You know, not too late." Not when it looks like a baby, you know. There are people who maybe don't come at it from a philosophical or theological background, but just sort of a, you know, by feel. Right. They're going to be forced I, to make a choice soon. I I, I wonder though um, if if um, I mean there there had been some talk uh yeah you know, d- during Supreme Court hearings and so forth when when the balance of the court shifted um 
most people thought Roe v. Wade probably won't be overturned per se, but it will be chipped away at a little bit. Uh, certain state laws will be upheld in terms of limiting uh, state or federal laws will be upheld to limit abortion. Um, I, I wonder, though, if, if, if um, just as the Calhoun speech kind of recast slavery as a as an unfortunate evil um, and now you have this, uh, the New York law, the other states, Vermont, following suit, you had the, of course, uh, Virginia governor's odd comments about that. I, I wonder if that would change the trajectory to make it actually more likely we would have a actual confronting this and a repealing of Roe v. Wade at some point. I mean, it's certainly possible. I mean, maybe just people hearing what the pro-abortion side, how they talk about it, how they how they value it, might might change some minds too, and they may, may people say, you know, these these people are sick, you know, yeah. maybe there's something wrong with them. Yeah, maybe maybe they're not. Maybe it would be better if we had laws against what they're there for. You know, Whereas they used to try and sound reasonable. You know, to to get that that moderate support. Yeah, so you might be right. I mean, maybe just having this, you know, calum this awfulness front and center do you think if Calhoun had not recast it in that light that uh, I mean would that have delayed the inevitable conflict on this or or do you think I mean what, what was that a central moment for this like I, I, I think it was I think it was a, a turning point but I think it would have somebody else would have eventually <laughs> made that argument because right, he, I think as that side became an increasingly a minority in the House and in the Senate and in the country, mm-hmm. uh, they were going to either have to give it up or they were going to have to fight for it. And mm-hmm. most of them didn't seem to want to give it up. I mean, they had economic investments in it. You know, they were just you know thinking of what would happen next. What do we? How how are we supposed to live? So I think somebody would have found a way to justify it along those lines. Calhoun just happened to be because he was a sort of a deep thinker on these lines. He was the first to to reach the extreme, and a lot of people followed right away. Yeah, he, he kind of saw where it was going before others did uh, on both sides, I think. is right. Yeah, and I, I, I like, you know, certainly, Fred, you know, talking about, you know, he kind of hit this kind of extreme moment. Um, you know, I, I, it does make me, it strikes me, there's actually one a disabled advocate, uh, pro-life advocate, who actually, I thought he, his words were actually really, Great in this, he says. I don't want to make abortion illegal. I want to make it unthinkable, um, which I think is a really. I think that really is at the heart of this debate for a lot of people who haven't maybe thought about this philosophically. That you know, making this an unthinkable thing, especially we have such extremist comments right now from the pro-choice side, many of whom have not really answered for this, especially because the media has been particularly uninterested in exploring the kind of extreme levels of where the pro-abortion movement is going. Uh, I think we may have, I mean, there may be some minds that have been changed by this whole thing. There's certainly a, a lot going on in this country right now. Uh, and certainly, uh, Kyle, your, your article definitely injected some, I think, very important historical deep dive into this issue and how it relates to the past, how it relates to our our, our regime and our, and how rights are viewed in America. So uh, thank you so much, Kyle, for, for coming in and, yeah, thanks, and talking about yeah. this. Really do appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Thanks, everyone, for joining us on The Right Side of History. If you'd like to listen to past and future broadcasts, you can also check us out on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, 
or the Daily Signal website. Also, take a look at the Daily Signal's Facebook page for when we air our next program. And if you're further interested in our work, check out my Twitter, at FredLucasWH, and Jarrett's Twitter, at Jarrett Stepman. Thanks again for listening. You've been listening to The Right Side of History, executive produced by Jarrett Stepman and Fred Lucas. Sound designed by Michael Gooden, Lauren Evans, and Thalia Rampersad. For more information, visit heritage.org. Want to get up to speed about the Supreme Court? Then subscribe to SCOTUS 101, a podcast about everything that's happening at the Supreme Court and what the justices are up to.